Welcome back to another episode of Peter's Proffer here in the courtroom of current events. And today we are going to go through our most searched and Googled topic and blog on our website, which is child hearsay. My dad and Pete wrote an article about it years and years ago, and other law firms cite it, they search it, they pull from it, and it's kind of become an authority on child hearsay. If you don't know what it is or you don't know why it's so important, Take a listen to this podcast. I'm basically going to interview my dad, and he's going to go through what child hearsay is and why it's important. So if you have any topics you want us to to talk about or to comment on, feel free to find us on social media at Tragos Law or send me an email, petertragos at greeklaw.com. All right, so dad, we're here today to talk about child hearsay, which is basically our most viewed page on our website, which is kind of shocking. But tell tell the listeners first, just to kind of set the stage, what is child hearsay? Well, I think we should start with what is hearsay. Okay. And hearsay is an out-of-court statement introduced at trial for the truth of the matter asserted, which means somebody else said something, you repeat it and say that this is true and it should come in evidence. Right. So for example... George Tragos was the one that threw the rock that hit Betty in the face. You're trying to say that at trial, that I said George threw the rock to prove that George threw the rock. Now, that's fine if I come and testify and I actually saw George throw the rock, but if Pete wants to come and say that I said that George threw the rock, that's hearsay, that doesn't come in. Now, there are exceptions, but generally speaking, that doesn't come in. Because it's not firsthand knowledge of what actually happened. You didn't actually see it, but you heard somebody else talk about it. And it's basically a credibility issue. So we want to get the best evidence in at trial. We want the eyewitness who actually saw what happened to come and testify, not somebody that the eyewitness told because the old game of telephone is funny for a reason, because one person tells one person, they tell the next, they tell the next until the green shirt becomes the pink pants at the end of the row. So, you know, that's kind of the basis of why hearsay is unreliable and why usually it can't come in at trial. And we also have, uh, we took this from the English system when it came over here. Plus, let's not forget there's a constitutional provision called the Confrontation Clause. Right. Which means in the Constitution it says the person who actually accuses you of something has to confront you so that you have the ability to do what's known as the best way to challenge the truth of something, and that's called cross-examination. Right. So the confrontation clause basically um, uh, makes sure that you have the opportunity to question and poke holes in whatever it is that somebody's accusing you of doing. Right. That's what the confrontation clause really is. And while hearsay is unreliable in both civil and criminal court, a lot of what we're talking about is in criminal court. And that's the highest standard, the highest burden in all the courts in the United States beyond a reasonable doubt. That's where the confrontation clause really comes into play. And that's where a lot of hearsay and why anything that might not be reliable, why you don't want to let it in, especially in criminal criminal court, because you're taking away life and liberty from somebody potentially. Right. And you're removing the opportunity for cross-examination, which is why there are certain exceptions. Well, however. Explain that for a second. So why are you ruining the opportunity for cross-examination if a hearsay statement comes in? Because you cannot cross-examine the person that actually said the statement. So going back to our example, if Pete says, if Pete Sardis says that Peter Tragos said that George threw the rock, then you can't cross-examine Peter Tragos about what he saw, right? You can only ex- cross-examine Peter Sardis. 
about what Peter Tragos told him, which makes no sense at all because you can't challenge the truth of it. Right. Like, where were you standing? What did he see? What arm did he throw with? Peter Sardis might not know that because he may have just heard Peter Tragos say that the rock was thrown. But Peter Tragos, if he actually saw it, should be able to answer all those detailed questions. So that's the importance of cross-examination and why you can't cross-examine somebody that's giving a hearsay statement. Right. But we have certain exceptions. And those exceptions come from two different places. This is like a year and a half of law school in one right. podcast. Brother. You're welcome. <laughs> but one exception is the group that came from the old English. Uh, it came over here across the, uh, across the pond okay. over the United States. And those exceptions are rooted in the um, old traditions. For instance, there's one called, and it relates to what we're talking about today, and that's excited utterance or spontaneous utterance. A police officer sees an accident, runs up to the person who was in the accident. They're stuck in the automobile. They're bleeding from their head. And they say, the green car did it. Right. Well, that's considered reliable because they didn't have a time to really think about a lie. Uh, it came right out. It was a spontaneous, excited right. statement. There's a ton of exceptions. But why are you bringing up this one specifically? Because this one is where it starts for the child hearsay. Okay. Because initially, if a child said something right after the incident happened, it might be an excited utterance. So it could be an exception. But what's happened with children is the courts have recognized that sometimes children don't say these things right after they happen, but they may say it two weeks later or a month later. And under those circumstances, we now have a statutory exception, which was not rooted in the Old English, but which the legislature passed, and it's called uh, Chapter 90.80323. That exception is now in the statutes, and it can be used to bring in hearsay that didn't happen right after the event. So, so, so is it a child hearsay exception? Yes. Okay. And child hearsay specifically is a child hearsay exception. And it's grounded in the excited utterance exception. Is that kind of what you're saying? I think that's where it started. Okay. But then we had to kind of put it, give it some time because children don't react like uh, everybody else does. And so let's pause on that for a second. How does the unreliability generally of children's statements or testifying have to do with this? Well, there's a standard in the statute of reliability and trustworthiness. Children, uh, you know, we, we all know we were all children. We've, you know, if you've had children, you know that they may make something up. They may have a fantasy. They may think something happened, but it didn't. Or they may, you know, no. succumb to pressure like, you know, my mom wants me to say this, so right. I'm going to say this. Or they keep asking this question, try to figure out what answer they're looking for and give that answer. Right. So we know there's some unreliable factors to children's testimony, especially if there's time between when the action actually occurred and when the child actually said that the action occurred. So we've, we've got to uh, put some standards in there. So the legislature wrote this in order to, number one, protect children and to make sure that a good, reliable, excited utterance by a child, no matter how, pa- how far past the a date of the incident occurred could be used to bolster the testimony of the child when the child testified in court, which, by the way, we've, we've got to differentiate children testifying and children not testifying. If a child testifies in court, that's the rule we're talking about and what we're talking about, about reliability and trustworthiness. Okay, so go ahead. So, so keep talking about kind of where the rule came from. What is it intended to protect? What, what hearsay from children? When the statute was passed, the reason for it uh, was to establish some reliability, some rules for how we could get the child hearsay in. 
there's two areas. One is you look at the source of the information and is the source trustworthy? And in making that determination, is the out-of-court statement have trustworthiness in itself? So I guess when we're talking about this, just to clarify, I really want to make sure that everybody who might not be a lawyer understands what we're talking about. Non-child hearsay is not a child coming and giving a hearsay statement. Right. It has to have these specific criteria so that it's reliable. Well, what I'm saying is it's somebody else saying what a child said. Right. Well, an example is child tells a mother, mom, he touched me or he touched me down there. That's the kind of statement that usually comes out, kind of a general But what I'm saying is it's the mom that's actually giving this statement to which the rule applies. Right. It is not a a child saying, I heard somebody say this. I just want to clarify that because child hearsay may be confusing, but it's actually the child's out-of-court statement that somebody else is going to repeat in order to prove what that child said was true so that we don't have to cross-examine the child and we don't have to drag the child through court and have some, you know, big, bad defense attorney pick the statement apart, right? I mean, that's really what the point is to protect that child from the cross-examination, but also to have them be a witness or what they saw or what they heard in within certain parameters can still come out at trial. Right. The child will come in to court or uh, come in in a remote facility to testify, this is what happened. And a defense lawyer will be able to cross-examine the child. But then after the child testifies, the child, let's say, example, the mother, then the mother will be able to come in and say what the child told her, and that is the hearsay exception. Okay, so let's get into that. So we've been talking about specific criteria that need to happen in order for this statement to uh, fit into the child hearsay exception. What are those, what, what is that criteria? Well, the criteria is mostly set out in case law. Okay. Uh, these, are, these are judges that have looked at the statute and said, look, these are the things you can look at to determine reliability. And, and I can give some examples of our own cases where we have been successful in keeping out child hearsay because it was the unreliable. source was unreliable or the statement was unreliable. Uh, for instance, and it's said in here, we had a mother come in and testify once about a child. Well, the mother was intoxicated when the child said this. A judge said, that's a source that's unreliable, an intoxicated mother. The judge wouldn't let the hearsay in because the source was unreliable. We had another situation where the child said uh, something and to the grandmother. But the grandmother, right before the child testified at the hearsay hearing, which we'll go into later, told the child, hey, do you remember telling me this, this, and this? So the grandma and, said it first. Right. And the child says, yes. And then the child came in and testified to what the grandmother told, uh, told her rather than his own spontaneous statement. And the judge kept that out. So, so for instance, it's not set out in a step-by-step one, two, three, four. You have to have these elements. It's more of you have to look at the case law, what's been reliable in the past or unreliable in the past. Right. Examples. Spontaneity. Did the child, was it just a spontaneous statement? Um, Was the uh, statement elicited because of questions from adults? What is the mental state of the child or the mental age of the child? One of the big ones that we all see a lot in in, uh, domestic cases or uh, divorce cases, one parent tries to influence a child to say something bad about the other parent. Mm -hmm. So the courts look at, was there a domestic dispute going on when this child said that. So would it be fair to say that each individual statement 
is put through a totality of the circumstances type test to see whether or not it is reliable. Right. And that test is done at a hearing outside the presence of a jury. So who's there? Who's at the hearing? Well, first, let's start out with how this starts. The state, within 10 days of the trial, has to file a notice of child hearsay. And then the defense has to object to it. Then the court has a live hearing with well, the, testimony. Well, the defense only objects to it if they don't, if they don't think it's reliable. Right. Okay. Right. So, so the state has to let you know as a defense attorney, um, and are these just criminal rules? These are the 10 days is a criminal rule. Right. Yes. So the state has to let you know within 10 days of the trial that they're going to, that they're going to use child hearsay statements. Do they have to tell you what those statements are, who the child is, who's going to be ta- uh, testifying? Yes. They have, there's a criteria in the statute of what has to be in this 10 day notice. And what is that? Well, they have to say what the statement is, the child's name, the witness's name to the hearsay statement, and the circumstances that the state believes illustrate the trustworthy and reliable nature of the statement in order to get it in as an exception to the hearsay rule. Okay. So then the defense, if they have a problem with it, they have to object. What happens if they don't object? They don't object, then it's going to come in against their client. Okay. And, and I really have never seen a situation where the defense lawyer did not object. Okay. So the defense lawyer objects, and then what happens? Then the court sets a hearing. At that point... How soon after? Because, I mean, you got trial in 10 days. Well, nine times out of 10, if the state waits until that 10-day period, the trial gets continued because there's not enough time to have the hearing. Why do you think it was such a short period of time that they allowed up until 10 days up until trial? I mean, nothing can get done in 10 days. Well, you're right, but it's funny. 10 days seems to be like a standard for notices in the statutes that... The, and the we rules, talk about that in the Rules Committee meetings yeah. now, and we actually try to logically set out time periods. But I will say every time we start talking about a time period, we look to the other rules to see what they did. So is that what you think they did here? They just kind of looked to the other rules? Absolutely. Okay. They they did well. And and basically what they did is they gave that that 10 days, gives the defense enough time to move for a continuance in order to have that hearing. Right. And it's funny. And some people don't know, although we've talked about it in the past, lawyers make these rules, basically. You know, they, they sit down and they talk about these rules and they... Um, talk about what edits they want to make to them. And it's lawyers from both sides of the aisle, you know, defense lawyers, prosecutors, civil defense lawyers, plaintiffs' lawyers. They all sit around and try to make these rules as fair as possible, but it's an in, it's an inexact science and an imperfect process. So, okay, so the defense lawyer objects. They move for a continuance. Then what happens? Then they have a live hearing where the judge makes a determination as to whether or not... Who all has to come to the live hearing? The live hearing of the defense lawyer, uh, the normally his client, the prosecutor, although it's not required, the case law says it's preferred to have the child testify, and of course the person who uh, the child told, and if there's any other reliability factors or factors the defense wants to put on to show it's not reliable. You can call other witnesses. Call the witness. It's a full evidentiary hearing live and in the courtroom. Does the case law say if the child testifies in this situation that that um, that uh, is sufficient for the confrontation clause? Um, yes, it, it is. Because you're getting to see them, you're getting to cross-examine them in court. Correct. Okay. Yes. That, that There's another provision of this rule that really the confrontation clause really does impact, and that is that the child does not testify. And there's some additional rules and additional criteria, but really I've never really seen a situation where a child didn't testify when they wanted to put the hearsay in. Okay, so meaning nine times out of ten or even more than that. More than that. If the, if they want to use these hearsay statements, the child at least has to testify in this hearing. Right. So What's can, the hearing called, the child hearsay hearing? 
I I would guess so. Different judges call it. They call it a disposition hearing. They can call it a pretrial. They can call it a status. Okay. Uh, they can call whatever they want. So okay. So you show up to the hearing. The defense lawyer brings his witness. They bring. I'm sorry. They bring his client and any witnesses they may have to show it's unreliable. For instance, somebody that was drinking with the mom all night before the child supposedly told them this, or somebody or, else that was in the room that says the child didn't actually say that, or, or somebody bring, that heard the mom tell the child to say this or you present to the court that there's a divorce going on sure you present to the court that the child uh, couldn't even be in the same room with the person that heard the statement or you say you know that the child uh, this is you know six months later because the, the passage of time is a factor a court can take into consideration uh, or was it a and this happens a lot where a law enforcement officer, is the one they try to put on. Well, if a law enforcement officer, there are special you know, criteria. They're trained how to interview people. They're trained how to get statements out of people. So a lot of times there's less credibility when you've got a law enforcement officer actually questioning the child, and that's when the child says it. So, so we've talked about a bunch of the criteria. Let's try to hit. Let's try to hit as many as you can think of that's from the case law. And in reality, any lawyer that's trying to fight this type of deal can go through the case law and try to pick any part or any reason that any other child hearsay statement was kept out and they can try to use that to show it's unreliable. But we've talked about, um, you know, uh, interpersonal issues like a, a family law case going on, unreliability based on intoxication or something like that, time that has gone by as to whether or not the statement's reliable, um, whether or not they could could have been at the time and place that, that, uh, that they're saying they were with the child to give that statement. Anything else from the case law? Sure. Well, we've also touched on the fact that was the statement elicited? Was it a response to right. questions? Um, was it the first available opportunity for the child to say it? Did the child use terminology that was age appropriate? In other words, did they use you know words like you know kiwi or, or nicknames or birdie that kids would use, or did they use the technical phrase? So that would show maybe somebody led this child into saying those things. Can the child differentiate between reliability and fantasy? And you've got to go through. Do you know, you know... So uh, the actual uh, statements right. themselves get, get uh, pin, uh, picked apart and the child's credibility sure. himself or have, herself. Right. You ask a child, have you ever seen a unicorn come down the street? Oh, yeah, there's a unicorn that lives in my room. You know, those kind of distinctions between fantasy and reality. How specific was the accusation? Did the child know details or was it just a broad statement like, he hurt me? Um, how about, we talked about improper influence uh, in a divorce or domestic situations. And then we have contradictions. Child said one time, yes, this happened. Child said another time, no, it didn't happen. There's even been situations where a child would say and hearsay, yes, this happened, and give details. Then when the child testified in court, the child say it didn't happen, but the state was allowed to put in the hearsay statement that it did happen and use that as an attempt to convict an individual uh, of the sexual and offense. Then, but then you can put in the statement where the child said it didn't happen. Right. Right. So then, And right. then the jury just determines which one's more reliable at that point. Right. But that's something the court also can take into consideration in whether or not to even let the hearsay in. Okay, so you have the hearing. Um, is it like a mini trial? Do you do openings, witnesses, closings, or how does it work? Normally, there's a short opening statement, so to kind of to give the court an idea of what you're putting on. 
evidence is put on, and then the closing isn't like a jury closing. It's more like legal argument. You tell the KR, right, here's what the case is. Here's what other judges have done. Here's what other judges have said about this kind of a situation to try to influence the judge because the standard, and again, this is lawyer talk, the standard is abuse of discretion. So if a judge makes a ruling in appellate court when you appeal this, if the person gets convicted, the appellate court says, well, we're only going to reverse this child hearsay uh, decision by a judge if the judge abused their discretion. So generally, they give a lot of weight to the way the judge feels at the time he makes the ruling. So what are what is the decision that the judge makes at the end? Did they make a decision line item each individual uh, statement? Do they make it by witness? How does it work? Well, it all depends. If the statement happened at one time before one person, then it's one decision. Either pretty much... But if there's a bunch of different statements to a bunch of different people, did the judge just go line item, this statement's in, that statement's out? Normally that doesn't happen because when you think about the rule and how the rule is characterized, if a child made a statement on day one to somebody, statement on day two to somebody else becomes less reliable because this is a situation... Unless it's of, the same statement. Unless, yeah, but you, they don't allow multiple statements to okay, come in. Okay, well, that's a good question. So yeah. they, so, if, so if the child told the same thing to five different people on day one, two, three, four, and five, they're only allowed to pick one witness to say what the child said? Correct. Okay. Because there's another rule called 403, which basically is a fairness rule. And that is, is it fair to bring five of the same statements in against the defendant? Uh, do we really see that as being correct? And normally courts say no. Normally, you have a hearsay statement. The one hearsay statement comes in. The fact that he repeats it five times doesn't come in before the jury. Okay, so the judge determines whether or not the hear Is it usually one statement? What's usually, the norm? Usually, it's one statement. Okay. Uh, generally speaking, sometimes the statement is longer than others. Uh, Does the judge ever keep parts of a statement but not others? He, they can, but I've not seen that, at least in my experience. And, okay. we, and, and, and we do a lot of these. Okay. And I've never seen a, a judge say, okay, this sentence is in and this sentence is out. Usually if the circumstances Right, I would show, think that doesn't make much sense. Right, right, show that's trustworthy, then the entire statement comes in. Okay, so the judge makes a determination as to whether or not the statement comes in, and then what happens after that? Do you appeal it immediately, or do you have to wait till after your trial before you can appeal the judge's decision on the child hearsay statement? The norm is you have to actually go to trial. Your client will have to actually be convicted before you can appeal it. And it becomes one of your appellate issues. So how is it actually used at trial then? How is it implemented? Do you have to have a sidebar with the judge? Do you have to um, bring up your objection again to these hearsay statements? And how does it kind of progress at trial? At trial, you should, you should renew your objection in order to preserve it for appeal. That's one of the things that lawyers get caught sometimes by not renewing the objection because at the trial you have to ask the judge to you know, reconsider his, the ruling. It never changes, but you still have to make your record. Then it comes in, the jury probably doesn't even realize that they have some kind of exception here. They just hear the testimony like any other testimony, whether it's the mother or the grandmother or the aunt that the child made the statement to. Okay, so then it just comes in like regular testimony. If your client gets convicted, then you can appeal it and go through all those channels at the end. Correct. All right, so why do you think that this is something that is so searched on our website? Why do you think people quote it in their articles? Why do you think our favorite professor, Chuck Earhart, put it in his uh, Rules of Evidence book that all trial lawyers use in Florida? Why do you think it's got so much traction? I think because it's an area that people don't know a lot about. And it's 
if people are confronted with it, if you're a lawyer confronted with this, you have to do some research to learn about it. And the way you do it is you go online and you find these articles. Our article is specific. It really deals a lot with defense lawyers and showing defense lawyers how do you deal with this situation. And it's, it's funny because in 1985 is when the uh, statute was passed. We wrote our article in 2004. So that's 15 years ago. 20. Oh, 15 years ago, but 20 years after the rule was Right, in. but we wrote the article 15 years ago. And yet, the law hasn't changed much. And the way the courts are applying it hasn't changed much. So people are using our article and continue to use our article as authority to educate them on how they deal with this kind of a problem. So basically, it's a very specific issue, and there's not a ton of literature on this issue, so people seem to keep coming back to this, at least in Florida. Right, and consider this. It is a such a serious issue because it only comes up in the most serious of cases. I mean, sexual battery cases, child molestation, just the most serious of cases. Right, and, and it doesn't hurt, obviously, once it's in the, the Rules of Evidence book that Earhart puts out. You know, that's something that people reference and can go look to articles. And it's not abnormal for lawyer articles to be read and referenced because all lawyer articles really are is research and regurgitate the cases that we find and things that we've used in our arguments. So we're just pulling the cases, making it easy for whoever's reading our article. They can go pull those cases and use them the way that we use them. Right. So that's that's not abnormal. That's how all, you know, lawyers that write these scholarly articles, that's what they do. Right. And we also try to be very accurate. We made sure we cited the correct cases, we cited them properly, and explained those cases to the lawyers that are reading the article. Very good. So that is child hearsay. Um, If you're a lawyer out there, you probably enjoyed it a little more than the average layperson, but hopefully you guys learned something today. And that's a wrap on this week's Peter's Proffer. Thanks for listening.